Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. You may grab your seats and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 17. So if you can go and start turning there, if you have your Bibles. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, and we're continuing our series called Turned. And what we're looking at, as we talked week one, it looks like an uncomfortable conversation that we're able to be part of on outside looking in between a father and his children. It's uncomfortable because it's some discipline that's taken place here. So you got children, specifically the Israelites, have turned to their own ways, had disobeyed, had, like Mark said last week, broken the covenant. And so that's what we're looking at this morning, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. We'll go into chapter 3. If you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, God is Still Good. God is Still Good. Throughout church history, recent church history at least, there's been this refrain that takes place between two people or a pastor and his congregation. It goes something like this. It says, God is good, and then the response will be, all the time, and then all the time, God is good. I'll start going to try this together. That's just a warm-up, just walking through that, because I know it takes us a little getting used to it, and we actually talk in church, it gets crazy. All right, so we're trying this, right? God is good, all the, all the time. And my question is, do you believe that? We're going to test that this morning. Do a little prying, because I think it's easy to say, but it's harder to implement to live out. So I want us to know that God is still good. And that's what we're coming to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. That's what we're going to see is the Israelites were questioning God's goodness. Look at verse 17. God kicks it off. You have wearied me, the Lord, with your words. Yet you ask, how have we wearied you? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight. And he is delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? I mean, just think of the audacity. They're basically saying, you think wickedness is like worship to you. You think evil is good. That's the way you're acting, at least. That's what they're saying to God. Where's your goodness? Where's your justice? And there's a caution for us to watch out for here. See, I think we go into this temptation from time to time to measure God's goodness by what happens around us or what happens to us. We can be tempted to measure God's love for us by either what we get or don't get. It's interesting. You know, it's this, you know, it's it, Christmas season's coming and it's by far too early to have Christmas commercials, but they're here, right? I don't know if you noticed that. It's in October, we're having Christmas commercials. I love Christmas, but not yet. It's not, it's not season. Anyway, I, I digress. So, but every year you see this Christmas commercial where this loving husband buys his wife a car for Christmas, right? Have you seen these commercials? Yeah. So this would be like my wife seeing that, and that's her expectation of love. And so Christmas morning comes, And she opens up her presents from her loving husband, and she finds a pair of fine flip-flops, right? But you must not love me because I didn't get that. 
I mean, that's kind of what's happening here. You, you're letting these things happen to bad people, but what about us, our good people, and we're being deprived, we're in poverty, while the evilness is just so persuasive and pervasive in our society and going unpunished and thriving. Where's your goodness? Where's your love for your people? It's interesting. How did God's people get to the point where they start questioning God's goodness? Well, I think we touched on it week one a little bit. I'm not going to rehash that whole thing. But it starts with doubting God's word. And there's a sequence, a slide that happens, because you doubt God's word, then you doubt God's way, and then it ends with you leaning on your own understanding. And God has something to say about that. Proverbs 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Why? Because we can be stupid. It's in the Bible. I'll get there. I can say that. I know. Like, who you call it stupid? I get it. Bear with me. There's this person named Asaph. And so you can turn to Psalm 73. We're just going to take a quick journey to Psalm 73. We're going to have the slides as well. Asaph, we see in 1 Chronicles 16, was a worship leader under King David. But Asaph had this same concern that the Israelites were expressing, at least very similar. Psalm 73, verse 2, he says, My feet almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray, for I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In verse, thir- verse 12, he says, Look at them, the wicked, they're always at ease and they increase in their wealth. And then verse 13, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? I'm going to pause there. Because I think we can all drift in this when we see all that's going on. And here we are doing all the right things for God. Right, man, we're reading our Bible. We're going to worship on Sunday mornings. Man, we're even serving in Way Kids Ministry, right? I mean, this is amazing, amazing movements of God in your life. We're praying, we're giving, we're going to Puerto Rico. And yet, we're sick. I lost my job. Been disowned by my family. God, where's the goodness? And we got to watch ourselves because we get drip, drift into this, God, you owe me. Look at all these things I've done for you, and you're going to treat me like this? There's a danger of looking around and measuring God's goodness versus looking to God and measuring his goodness. Still in Psalm 73, verse 16, he then writes, When I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. And then verse 22, I was stupid and didn't understand. It's interesting. And when I look at this, and I'm going back to Psalm 73 in a minute, but Asaph, Israelites, and I would say even us, we have this tendency to drift from an altered reality and actual reality. I'm going to try to explain this. Hopefully it makes sense. The story of my last two and a half weeks and our family's last, last two and a half weeks. 
kind of what it looks like. So about two and a half weeks ago, my wife got sick, came home from a church planting conference in Florida. And so we, she came home, she was sick. I had all this work to catch up on, but I had to take care of kids. That's what I do. I'm kind of a dad, so I got to take care of my kids while my wife is sick. So I got no work done for two more days, so the pressure is mounting on work that just doesn't go away. My kids start getting sick, so we start sharing the sickness going around the house. And so that lasted a series of sicknesses. In a busy work season, my just work life has been crazy busy. Just good stuff, just a lot. And then through the midst of all this, I had one child. And I can't really get into all the circumstances, but it's significant. That experience is a very traumatic experience that we're going through a legal process with right now. Life-changing, going to have some healing that the Lord would have to do. And then Rachel, in all this, started having some unknown kind of symptoms going on, unusual symptoms that started to bring up concern. Several days later, she got a doctor's appointment, got some blood work done. She found out she had a, a condition that one in every 1,000 women get during their pregnancy. Basically, she's allergic to our baby. And for those that don't know, we're expecting, uh, well, it's going to be December, but it looks like it's going to be next month. So what this happens, this condition, is that that will now induce her at 37 weeks because from 37 weeks to 40 weeks, the, child of the, the chances of the child being stillborn goes up significantly because it causes stress on the baby. So that's in the midst of all this. Last week following worship, my truck breaks down on the way home. Monday morning, I wake up, my car is a flat tire, right? This past week, I, I got sick myself, just down and out. And so why do I say all this? One, it feels like death by a thousand paper cuts, if I'm honest. Any one thing, they're not really huge things. But man, when you're in it, it feels like, can I get a break? Two and a half weeks is just like one thing after another. And I've never experienced a season like this. How it's undergirded by the spiritual warfare that we're feeling throughout. So my altered reality, I could have easily gone into this emotional self-pity spiral and if I'm honest, I think I can be honest here, there were moments. There were moments I, I, was, I just need a break. But the reality is that God is still providing and moving. And there was times I couldn't really see it until my wife or someone else spoke into it. Or until I started searching for where God's providing. Just by way of my wife speaking into her own, uh, trying to discover her own symptoms and find out what was going on, was by God's kindness, by showing her, pointing her in the right directions, bringing the right people, the right timing, to guide her, to seek help, to talk to the right nurse. It was just amazing. I mean, my car tire, it revealed that I had a bigger issue with my car that was more dangerous that I needed to get fixed. Like all these things, how God provided. I was able to stay home with my family to take care of them. My wife was here to take care of me this week. Like, these things that we can so easily miss, and this is not like the glass half full mindset. This is God's kindness that we can so easily miss because we drift in this ultra reality like everything's bad, everything's crumbling. God, where are you? Why aren't you doing anything? The fact is, He is. He is working. He is moving, but so many times it's not the way we think He should or we would like Him to. The actual reality that God is moving he is faithful and still good through all the garbage that we have to deal with that life throws at us. I believe Romans 8.28. For God, we know that all things work together for good, though those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. And by all, all things, is all things. 
And I realized when I just share my two and a half weeks of fairly trivial things, because I know many of you are dealing with very significant things, but it doesn't change the truth that God is still good. Despite what you're going through, despite the circumstances around you, God is still good. Who knows how things are going to turn out? But I know one thing, God is still good. He's still faithful. But we have to fight for that actual reality perspective. And we need people to come around us because we get weak. God does not design you to be alone. He designed us to be together, to bear the burden alongside one another. The beauty of the local church he has established. So basic question, when we look at Asaph, what brought him back from his emotional spiral? He turned to the Lord. That's what brought him back. He turned to the Lord because he was going down that road. But it said, when I entered God's sanctuary, he turned back to the Lord. Philippians 4 reminds us not to worry about anything. That's a lot of stuff. Think about what the stuff you're going to. I'm going to tell you, don't worry. You're like, thanks. That's helpful. It says, but don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So why do we don't worry? Because it's God. God has it all. Do we trust him or do we not? Do we trust him or do we lean on our own understandings? Because when we lean on our own understandings, that's what drives fear, anxiety, stress, worry. It goes on to say, in the peace of God, when you come to God with all your requests, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God brings a peace that is not understandable. He also moves in ways that are not understandable. But do we trust him? And so we come to him with everything. And that's what Asaph did. He turns back to God. Because at the beginning of Psalm 73, he's essentially saying the same thing as the Israelite people were. God, where's your justice? Where's your goodness? I see all this. I wish I was like them because they're the ones that were prospering. And look at me. But the difference between him and the Israelite people is that he turned to God, they are not. The question that's often posed is, if God is good, God is just, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? That's a question that people have such a hard time with. That's basically what they're asking here, maybe in a different way. Really, they're asking, why does good things happen to bad people? And I would say it's the right question, but wrong audience. Because what they're saying is, that's a great question, but they're thinking, we are the good people. Good things should be happening to us. They're the bad ones. Bad things should be happening to them. The reality is, we're all in the same boat. In response to why the bad things happen to good people, R.C. Sproul Jr. says that only happened once, and he volunteered. The Bible tells us that there's no one good. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He made the one who did not know sin, that being Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So why does bad things happen? Sin. It's sin. We're in a sinful, fallen world. But it doesn't mean God isn't still good and how he doesn't still use evilness and wickedness for his glory. But we have to endure. And that's what we're going to see here because after Asaph says this to close Psalm 73, he sees 
his perspective is changed, and he remembered God's promises and his faithfulness. He says in verse 27, he says, those who are far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you, but as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. God is still good. He remember, God is just, and he's still good. And so as we look at this, in Malachi, God's going to remind his people that he is still just. He's still full of justice. And that's what we see in verse 1 of Malachi 3. It says, see, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear away before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days and years gone by. So a couple things. So many things going on here. I'm going to touch on a couple things. Who is the messenger that he talks about? Who is coming? Well, Jesus quotes this specific passage in Matthew 11. He says what this passage is talking about is John the Baptist. And who was John the Baptist? He was the one who came to prepare the way for the way. Here's what I mean. When John seen Jesus, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was preparing the way for the Messiah. To which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So we see that the messenger was being sent. We now know as John the Baptist. And this is a, a key truth in how to study scripture. You let scripture interpret scripture, right? So we can find out who exactly this messenger was because Jesus tells us. He's John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist do? He came to prepare the way for the Lord. But we also see here that God's going to return again fully and finally one day. And that's the justice he points to. But there's two key questions that we see here in verse 2 that we can't go by. Two questions. Number one, but who can endure the day of his coming? This is when God comes back again, when Jesus returns again. And who will be able to stand when he appears? It's a good question that we have to be able to answer. It talks about refiner's fire here. See, what happens is the refiner's fire, you put metals in, and after it would heat up, the impurities would rise to the top to be removed to purify the metal. Well, this is what God does individually in us and then globally throughout history. Purification. So who can stand before God? Those who are pure. How do you become pure? I'm glad you asked. It's a great question. There's the purification process. I'm going to lay out there's a point and a process for purification. Who can stand? Those who are pure. Individually, the point is when you come to faith. When you believe that Jesus paid the price for your sin, who lived the perfect life that you could not live, to die the death that you and I 
should have died. The penalty that we couldn't pay, he paid for us. So that everyone who believes in him has life. The Bible says saved. We just sung about how God's wrath is satisfied. It's satisfied through Christ Jesus' sacrifice. So there's a point which 1 John 1 says the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Washed by the blood. That comes by faith. There's a point when you have to transfer your faith from yourself to your Savior. And until that point happens, you are still relying on your own righteousness, and God deems you impure, unclean. And the only way we can be made pure is by the blood of Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Who can stand? Those who are pure. How are you deemed pure and righteous? By faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. But there's also a process. So there's a point and a process. And I think 1 Peter 1 tells us a process very clearly. It goes back to what we're talking about. It says, even now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. What he's saying here is your suffering isn't worth nothing. God is doing something. He's still purifying you even through difficulties, trials, and sufferings. So as you go through what we call life, do you trust the Lord even when it hurts, even when it's not fair, even when you don't understand? Do you trust that he's actually working something that wouldn't be worked out in your life without that trial or circumstance? Wrap your mind around that for a second. Refining us, purifying us. There's a spot where you're made pure by faith, but there's a process. That's why we're not all bottle-rocketed up at the moment of your faith. He's not done in you and through you. But do we trust the process? And I would flip it globally, historically. There's a process and then there's a point. All right? Hang with the process. I think it's clarified most specifically in John 3.16. What's the process for making clean, pure a people? Well, God gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the process. If I could simplify it in one verse, that's the process. God had a plan. It all revolved around Christ. And everyone who comes to him will be made pure. But there's a point. There's a point when Jesus will return one day. 2 Peter 3 tells, tells us that the day will be like, the, the day of the Lord will be like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. And here's the truth that we see that we all will have to stand before Christ to be judged. 2 Corinthians 5 says, about be repaid for what you have done. You'll be judged about what you have done. Jesus says, in Matthew chapter 12, I tell you that that day, judgment people, on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. 
So we will stand before the judge one day to be judged by everything we've done and everything we've said. And I don't know about you, but I say a lot of stupid things. Ask my wife. She's working the kids right now. Just, it's scary, right? It's scary how unclean to make it biblical I can be. How easily sin creeps into my life. And knowing I will be judged by everything I do and everything I say one day. Either I go to the Lord or he comes back, but one way, we will all stand before him and have to make an account for everything that we've done or said. But how can you stand? If you're ready to stand on your own righteousness, because you can either reject Jesus or accept him. Rejecting him, saying, I'm good. I've got this. You will not stand in the day of judgment. And this is this reality. Talking about actual reality, this is actual reality. Your righteousness is like filthy rags, Isaiah says. How are you made righteous? It's through Christ Jesus. He made him who knew no sin, sin on our behalf, so we might become the righteousness of God. That's how you stand. In verse 5, he reminds us that he will be judging. Verse 5, he says, I will, come, I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies, because I, the Lord, have not changed. You descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. All right, a couple things I just want to break down quickly here. We start off with the caution of the temptation to measure God's goodness by what happens around us or to us. Here's another caution that we have to be aware of. That is to measure our goodness by the evilness around us. I'm just to be honest, you don't have to look very far to make yourself feel pretty good. Like I'm doing pretty good versus a lot of people, versus a lot of things I see happening. I'm a pretty good person. Is that what the Bible says? The Bible says that as long as you're good, better than other people, then you're doing all right. It's not what it says. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned. But sometimes we can use this passages like this as a checklist. Like, just think about this. Like, if we were to use Malachi 3.5 as a checklist, I'm doing pretty good. I don't dabble in sorcery, right? Many of you probably don't even watch Harry Potter. That's how awesome you're doing, right? I, that's a whole other thing. I'm just, don't. I've never committed adultery. I've never been oppressive. I'm definitely for justice. I mean, I'm doing pretty good when it comes to this list. Until you hear Jesus' teaching that's about the heart posture more than the action. It starts in the mind. Let me give you another list that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 9 through 11, he says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so they give us these lists to show us 
not how good we are, but how we are all captured in these lists, if we're honest. Just because we're not maybe doing, not committing the act of adultery, what do you say? Actually starts in the mind. You have lust, you've committed adultery. Just because I haven't killed someone, I feel like I'm doing all right. But wait a minute, Jesus said if you hate someone, you've committed murder. These lists in the law were to show us how much we need a Savior. We talk about sin a lot around here because the world does a great job to tell you how good you are. It's a lie. We have to see how depraved we are. Welcome to the way, church. I know you come here for encouragement. I know that. We have to see how depraved we are and how sinful we are to see how good God is. We can't possibly understand how much love he has for us until we see how unloving we are. While we were enemies of God, Romans 5 says, Christ died for us. we got to wrap our heads around how amazing God's love is for us. And he says this, that he has not changed. And this is good news. He's always been a promise keeper, a way maker, miracle worker. We're going to see him again in a minute. We just got warmed up a minute ago. Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God hasn't changed. So you know your circumstances will change. The things you go through, people around you, they will change. But know this, God doesn't. So when that next thing comes, you can endure because God is still good. You can get through it because God's still faithful. Do you trust him? Do you trust the process? And we see his kindness and his patience. So as you say, as he says here, one day I will return. And we see in Revelation, all things will be fully and finally made new. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more sickness, crying, death. But it hasn't happened yet. And that some people, I mean us included, and there's some very heavily persecuted areas in the world that are saying, come Lord Jesus. Like how can you let... Our Christians, brothers and sisters, be butchered, be beaten, be imprisoned, and do nothing. But 2 Peter 3, 9, in regards to his coming, he says, The Lord does not delay his promise. He is returning. He says, He doesn't delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so as many of us get tired of life and the struggles and enduring and difficulties, because life's hard, know that God's still good, he hasn't changed, and he's still working. And ultimately, every day that he doesn't come back is another day reminding us of his patience and his heart wanting all to come to him. And so as we look at these lists, we're tempted to say, man, some bad people, some bad things with heavy sins. And the point is they are, but that's a reminder that anyone can come to Christ. And as we look at verse 7, we're going to close here. He says, since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. He says this, return to me, 
and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. This is repentance language. This is what repent means. Turn from, turn to. Or changing your mind. Right? And so there's one way that we've been chasing and living in our sin until God shows us it, called conviction. Not condemnation. Totally different. That's from the enemy to say you're worthless. Conviction is saying you're worth it. God's kindness in showing you the damage of sin and calling you to return, to turn from your sin back to him. He says, return to me, and I'll return to you. And so I'm going to give us a time to respond to what God's doing. And you're going to respond. The band's going to come back up. I'm all going to invite you guys to come back up, and they're going to lead us. And we're going to sing again, and we're going to worship. But I'm wondering, when's the last time you just spent time in repentance? That is an act of worship. Asking God, if there's something that I've done that I'm not even aware of, show me. And when God brings that to your mind, and maybe he already has, maybe there's some things that you said this week, maybe some things that you've done this week, maybe some ways that you treated someone this week that you need to repent of. Because what happens, you repent to the Lord because primarily our sin is against him. But if it's against someone else as well, you need to make that right. If that's someone in this room, maybe you need to walk over to this person and just apologize. Maybe after you leave this place, you need to make a phone call. Maybe you need to spend time with your wife for the way you've beat her down with your words. Or your husband. Siblings. Mom, dad. Kids. Maybe there's periods of faithlessness. Maybe there's just some things that you've been trapped up in that you need to repent of. And why do we repent? Because we know that it, one, it's damaging, but it's dishonoring to the Lord. And when God renews your heart for him, you don't want to do anything that dishonors him. Because how amazing he is. And so as he shows us our sin, see it as an act of his kindness, inviting us to turn and knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us all sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe if you, for the first time, finally see your need for a Savior, maybe you've known a whole bunch of facts about Jesus, but never really trusted in all your life, do that today. It's not a magic prayer that you pray. It's a heart posture of, I see my sin, forgive me, and I don't understand it all, but I know when you said it's finished on the cross, that your blood counted for me, and I believe it. And at a moment of faith, you have new life. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And now can stand firm on solid ground in Christ Jesus now, no matter what swirling winds and storms that come around you, and in the day when we stand before the Lord, of saying, my righteousness is not in me, but it's in Christ Jesus. That's why I can stand. However the Lord's leading you, I invite you to respond today. And so I'm going to pray for us, that we're going to sing how God's a way maker, miracle worker again. But maybe your response as we sing, it could be standing and singing and praising because he's worthy. It could be sitting and praying and repenting because he's worthy.
you respond to what God's doing in your life. We're going to have a prayer team to the side. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you. You're not alone in your faith journey. We're a church that desires to walk alongside you well. But you respond to what God's doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here today. We thank you for your goodness, your kindness, and your patience, Father. And Lord, I just pray right now that if there's any blind spots in our life that we've been blinded to see any sin that's been there, Lord, reveal it to us. For our own health, Father, show us these things that are damaging, that are hurting our relationship with you, that are hurting our relationship with others. Lord, show us these issues where we need you to step in to give us strength over, to give us freedom from, whether it's anger or even alcohol. Father, I pray you just bring us to a spot of repentance, a broken heart, because we've fallen short of you and we've hurt those around us. At the same time, bring refreshing, bring restoring, bring the peace that passes all understanding. Bring a renewing, Father. Lord, because if we stay in this heart of brokenness, Lord, that's not from you either. You pull us out of the muck and mire. You rescue us. You restore us, Father. Your spirit is within us. And so do a work in us, Father, because we need more of you and less of us. And Lord, prepare us as we're getting ready to to go into another day, prepare us for the life that we're going to encounter, knowing that you're still faithful. Give us the strength to endure because you are still good. Help us to rely on you and not of ourselves. And when we tempted to drift to an altered reality versus actual reality, bring us back to yourself. Turn us, Lord. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace in this time you've given us. Do more work in us, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.